Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the SIP2 College podcast. This is the first episode in 2019, so Happy New Year to everyone listening. We have an exciting show for you today. Scott Miller, who works in SIP2's communications department, caught up with Guy Standing and spoke about precarious work and the precariat. Guy Standing is a British Professor of Development Studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies in the University of London. He's also the co-founder of the Basic Income Earth Network. Standing's best-known book is called The Precariat, The New Dangerous Class, and it was published in 2011. In it, he talks about globalisation, and he talks about it having the effect of plunging more and more people into a new class, which he calls the precariat. According to Standing, the precariat is not only suffering in terms of job insecurity, but also in terms of identity and lack of time control. Standing calls on political groups and politicians and unions to make ambitious reforms towards ensuring financial security is something everyone can enjoy. We also interviewed Charles Omni for this podcast, but technology has gotten in our way. Unfortunately, the interview was wiped from a smart card. But have no fear, lucky enough, we have a recording of Charles Omni's lecture to SIP2, which he gave recently, and we're going to have excerpts from that. So listen in. Charles is a lecturer at the University of Leeds. He teaches, researches and writes on the subjects of trade unionism, working conditions and employment policy across Europe. And he's also published a new book called Class Matters, which was published by Pluto in 2018 and is available in good bookshops such as Connolly Books in Temple Bar in Dublin. So listen in. Um, first off, we'll have Scott Miller's interview with Guy Standing. Guy is uh, famously the author of The Precariat. Precarious work has become a, a very major topic, uh, Guy. Um, what do you make? I was actually, I saw you here eight years ago, I think. That's it was right, seven that's years right. ago, I, I saw right. you talk here. And uh, for us, it was kind of a new topic then, and now it's the major topic of, uh, of trade unionism. Um, what do you think has happened over the last seven years? Well, in that book that you just mentioned, on page one, I said that unless the insecurities and needs and aspirations of the precariat were addressed as a matter of urgency, we would see the emergence of a political monster. Mm -hmm. And in November 2016, after the book had been translated into numerous languages, less than 24 languages now, I received emails from all over the world from people who said the monster has arrived. And the monster, of course, is Donald Trump. And we have had a situation where for far too long uh, the precariat has been ignored. Mm. And if we're, if we're honest, it was ignored for too long by trade unions mm. and by the left in general. I regret that, obviously, and I think at the moment we're in an interesting phase in the discussions because I still feel that the unions have not yet got it. What do you think we have to get? What, what, what is I, think, I think one has to realise that 
the precariat is not like the old proletariat. The precariat is defined in three dimensions, as I'm going to be talking about again this evening, in terms of distinctive relations of production as unstable labor, insecure labor. It doesn't have an occupational identity or narrative to give to one's life. And it has to do a lot of work for labor that isn't accounted for, respected and so on. And that aspect of it has got most of the attention so far. Everybody talks about you know, zero-hour contracts, unstable fixed-term contracts, but that aspect is only the most obvious one, but not the most important. But still commentators and too many people focus entirely on that. The second aspect, of course, is that the precariat has been suffering from stagnant wages, that are more volatile and unpredictable, a loss of non-wage benefits, a loss of access to rights-based state benefits, a loss to the commons, and is living on the edge of unsustainable debt, the indebtedness. And that goes together with the fact that, that the precariat face life of economic uncertainty. Okay, which causes a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress, a lot of other things. And that part of it is receiving some attention, but I think too much focused on the workplace. Because it's actually a societal issue of where the social income has been dismantled. Now that's the third aspect that I want to emphasize in this point, which is that it has distinctive relations to the state. And if you're in the precariat, you have a feeling of being a supplicant. You don't have rights. You're losing the rights of citizenship. And this part to me is the most important because you are treated in an undignifying way, right? And you can summarize all what I've just been saying, that whereas the old proletariat, the enemy, number one, two, and three was the boss the employer, okay? For the precariat, actually the enemy, the number one enemy is the state because it's the state that's dismantling the institutions. It's the state that doesn't care about the environment. It's the state that is not pursuing legal... So you think the state is a legitimate target nearly of the precariat? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that means that our vocabulary, if you're a pro-union person like Mm. myself, the vocabulary and the imagery must be adapted to these new realities. If I talk, as I do, hundreds of precariat groups around the world that I've been privileged to address, if I start talking in a very, very favorable way about trade unions, they'll all rush for the bar. Right. And I've been saying that. I don't say with any pleasure whatsoever. But I think we need on the left and with, with our unions to reorient how we articulate our strategy on the environment, which is number one concern for many people in the precariat, how we articulate our restructuring of our social protections uh, system. Well, that, that's something, basic income is something that yeah. you have been uh, championing. Yeah. Uh, 
And how do you see basic income as, as a system? This because there would be disagreements about basic income, whether it would undermine our actual ability to uh, for wage bargaining. Whether you know, like it, it's. Well, I, I, I'm I'm strongly in the opinion that a basic income today would strengthen collective bargaining, mm. would strengthen our ability to say fuck off, to strengthen our ability to oppose oppressive relationships and be able to bargain stronger. Mm. We are living in a time of chronic insecurity. Mm -hmm. There's nothing that makes people more timid than to be chronically insecure, right? And therefore, if we give people some basic security, some assurance that they're gonna have some money in their pocket Come what may, right? They'll be more bold. Why do you think basic income would be better at doing that than basically re-establishing the proper welfare state? Or do you well, think well I, I think that the, the welfare state has to be recalibrated with the world economy as it is, with rentier capitalism. We have to redistribute the rent that I've been writing about because that's going up to the plutocrats and so on. So in a sense, worrying about the bargaining over wage rates when the, the toffs are taking off the billions is, is, is really fiddling around with the margins and we've got to articulate our agenda. Of course it's important to raise wages. Of course it's important to have collective bargaining. Of course. But we're gonna be, we've got to see the system as a challenge. And for me, a basic income is not a panacea. A basic income is part of a recalibrated welfare system where you say everybody has a right to basic security. Then you have contributions-based social insurance on top of that. Then you have entitlements for supplements for the people with disabilities or with extra costs and so on. So Yours is a, a basic income plus of other things, whereas some are, maybe some of the right that pushes the basic income oh, further just they're, they're, they're off, they're off yeah. the wall. Yeah, yeah they're, they're, they're off the wall. The, the libertarian, system. the yeah. libertarian. I've had arguments with yeah. Charles Murray and various people yeah. in, the, in Silicon Valley. Yeah. They're off the wall. Yeah. I mean, we need a system which is redistributive, gives people rights, and gives collective voice. We need voice. We, if you don't have voice, you're always insecure. Just on the thing, we had Charles Umney here uh, a few weeks ago. You know Charles Umney, and he, he he's looking at the precariat uh, or precarious work, and sees it more as a process rather than the production of, of a new class. You know, he has it in a more uh, what we call old school Marxist sort of sense that he's looking at. Do you think that is a failure to understand the way the mode of production has kind of changed in the, in the modern world? Or, or, or Look, would, would you criticise? His position, I've had many scars on my back uh, as a result of believing that the precariat is a class mm. from old-style Marxists. They like to claim there's always been precarious work, etc. Um, I feel that you're missing the structural changes if you take that, that approach. There isn't a solid bourgeoisie and a solid working class. Come on, let's wake up. If I talk in those languages to a particular, to a precariat group anywhere in Spain or anywhere, they'll laugh, okay? We've got to realize that the precariat is distinctive from the old proletariat and that you can define it in class terms. Well, the last point is the yeah. relations to the state. Yeah. And the precariat has different relations to the state to the old proletariat. 
if you if I see you here again in seven years' time, what would you like to have seen the trade union movement do? To Come out strongly in favour of basic income. Come out strongly in favour of bargaining with the state in a frontal way. Come out in favour of struggling to revive the commons. That was Scott Miller's interview with Professor Guy Standing. Now we have Charles Omni's speech from the Kevin McMahon Memorial Lecture, which took place in Liberty Hall. Good evening, friends, comrades. Um, thank you very much for coming. Um, it's really an honour to be invited. So thanks especially to Keen um, for kind of reaching out and, and asking me to come. It's a real privilege. Uh, I wanted to start, actually, um, with some reflections, perhaps not so much as a, a kind of academic researcher, but as a, a trade unionist from particularly within the UK university sector, uh, since I'm speaking at Liberty Hall and uh, um, obviously at a lecture named in honour of a great trade unionist. Uh, some of you may know that earlier this year in uh, UK universities, we had more or less the largest uh, industrial action there's really been in the sector, certainly in my lifetime. Uh, this was about the dismantling of our uh, pension scheme. It involved uh, 62 universities, I think, and lasted for five weeks on and off. Um, we were picketing, as you can see here, in sort of not the most ideal weather, but it was all sort of good um, camaraderie building stuff. Uh, and actually, comparatively successful, um, we know at the moment that if, if you follow these things, you may be aware that kind of management is somewhat on the back foot. Um, I mean, why did I want to start with this? Well, firstly, I suppose I wanted to kind of set an optimistic tone um, from the beginning by kind of saying that uh, striking works, trade union works, solidarity works. Um, people who uh, sell their labour power can change things if they work together. You know, sort of very simple message that I think is going to be quite important um, later on. Uh, even, I might add, kind of uh, academics such as myself who have always tended to assume that if we go on strike, nobody actually uh, notices. Um, but apparently this time they did. So, yeah. Um, but it wasn't just to sort of a kind of, you know, um, not, not simply coming in to say, hey, isn't striking great? Because obviously that potentially could be uh, preaching to the converted to some extent. Um, there were also various things that were quite troubling about this um, period of action that sort of happened during the strike that connect well to what I want to say today um, related to the topic of precarious work and uh, even, dare I say, related to class politics, the, the, the theory and politics of class, despite the ostensibly relatively kind of, let's say, sheltered professional nature of, uh, of academia. So, for instance, look at how management responded. And I'll just say, when, when I sort of say these things to, to people from kind of continental Europe, so sort of France, Italy, Germany, they're really kind of aghast at these things I'm about to say. Um, I'd be interested in whether Irish friends are shocked by this or not. So during the strike, um, management argued very hard that uh, we would have to kind of retroactively, sorry, we would have to reschedule the classes that we missed from teaching during the strike uh, upon our return to work. In other words, we'd kind of be retroactively sort of scabbing on ourselves. Um, so we, 
declined to do this. And after that, they really kind of upped the ante. Uh, so some of us started getting letters from uh, HR saying that we'd be uh, deducted pay, in some cases up to 100% of pay, uh, more or less indefinitely, um, even after the end of the strike, uh, until we were agreed to reschedule classes. Some, some universities claim that if students successfully sued them to get a refund on tuition fees, um, these losses would come out of strikers' pay. And some universities uh, intimated that staff on international visas could be reported potentially to the Home Office as having unauthorised absences, quote-unquote, from work as a result of strike activity. So there was, um, I don't want to be kind of hyperbolic here, but there was a period where it did look like a realistic possibility that some, um, some comrades might have their status as immigrants within the country put under threat because of taking part in the action. So this kind of thing, of course, has kind of complicated effects. It sort of simultaneously undoubtedly scared people, um, but it also kind of strengthened people's resolve. So the pictures behind me um, are of uh, sort of local branch meetings at Leeds during the strike. Um, this was a level of kind of engagement and mobilisation that I've never seen before, um, ever in, in academic trade unionism. And I wanted to take this little sort of story as a starting point because it shows something quite interesting. It shows how a group of people who are often viewed in many respects as kind of labour market elites, you know, doing a sort of white-collar professional job with relatively high levels of kind of uh, professional autonomy and qualifications are by no means sheltered from the pressures which are kind of inherent in the labour-capital relationship. The, essentially, the precariousness of basically having nothing to sell but your labour power. And I'm not just talking here about the literal casualization of contracts, which is perhaps one limited way of measuring precariousness, and which certainly is uh, increasingly endemic in universities, uh, I'm talking maybe about a more sort of diffuse and difficult to define feeling of being uh, threatened, let's say, and of having to reckon with a kind of alien managerial power with a huge amount of power over your life and who has fundamentally different interests to you. Uh, this experience, one of the things I try to argue in the book, is not unique to certain sectors of the workforce, for instance, what might be called the precariat. Um, but it is to sort of varying degrees, you know, the phrase varying degrees here, obviously very important, inherent in the experience of having to function as labour in capitalist societies. So in the talk, I want to say a bit more about what this actually means or what we might do about it. Anyway, so, uh, behind me is a kind of broadly representative sample of how we currently talk about class in the United Kingdom. Uh, so the first thing you will see here is the uh, absurdity of this discussion. So looking at these kind of pieces of data behind us, you would say that um, class is basically about a set of sort of relatively fuzzily defined cultural preferences and attitudes. So to be authentically working class, um, you have to not go to Costa Coffee. Um, you have to not particularly like avocados. And you also have to really hate traffic jams, but not only do you have to dislike traffic jams, you have to believe that traffic jams are caused by immigrants. Um, 
this is uh, kind of stupid. Um, and the main motivation for the book was wanting to sort of attack this kind of very shallow and self-serving approach to the topic. In the UK, for a long period, I guess until sort of the last few years, really, uh, conventional wisdom for anyone in kind of mainstream politics and media was that class was basically a, a kind of dinosaur concept. Essentially, it was something that used to matter at some indeterminate point in the past, kind of associated with these oblique Victorian slums where children toiled in factories run by uh, plutocrats with top hats and twirling moustaches and so on. The kind of centrist post-Thatcher consensus in UK government talked about class in the same way as they essentially talked about trade unions. You know, they must have been important at some point, some long a kind of long time ago, uh, but nowadays we have all this kind of great stuff like uh, a welfare state and employment law and uh, corporate social responsibility, ha-ha. So we don't really need them anymore. And then, there, on the other hand, there are all these kind of cutting-edge Silicon Valley sort of tech elites like Elon Musk and so on who can see we don't need unions, so why don't we just be more like them? Now, what I want to do here is not simply obviously take the easy route and say, ha-ha, kind of how naive those people were because that obviously is kind of an easy target and ends up a bit like sort of taking candy from a baby in the, in the current climate because since you know the brexit vote at home uh trump's election various other developments um has led kind of globally to a lot to a kind of resurgence in interest in class but from a really kind of crude and, and, and sort of self-serving way. So if you look in quite a superficial way at politics in many different countries, class is sort of back in fashion to some extent. Um, so people like uh, Donald Trump, the right wing of the British political establishment, people like Marine Le Pen in France and Alternative for Germany have made a lot of political advances by playing on like, this very particular idea of class politics based on this kind of cultural symbolism sort of coal miners, um, cap-doffing patriotism and so on. Sort of uh, presenting themselves as class warriors, but with their own definition of what that means. So look in the quote behind me, this was from Theresa May's first speech as Tory party leader and hence prime minister. Look how Theresa May mentions the topic of job insecurity. She, meant, she alludes very directly to precarious work, but she merges it into this kind of big ball of like working class identity issues alongside uh, being pro-monarchy, um, being pro-death penalty, and being anti-immigration. So it's no longer that class is kind of out of fashion. Class politics is back in fashion, but in a very, very particular and quite dubious form. In the UK, we can really see this shift starting in the kind of aftermath of the financial crisis, and especially the introduction of austerity around 2010. The uh, coalition government of 2010 wanted kind of some form of ideological justification for their policy agenda, which was, of course, to kind of draw back the welfare state, tighten trade union rights, generally make things easier for employers and so on. Uh, they needed to do this stuff without seeming too much like kind of horrible olden days Tories. Uh, so uh, Cameron Osborne identified this category that they called uh, many different things, but particularly... Um, the phrase hardworking people, which I assume has various kind of um, equivalents in this country as well, which we've been discussing, uh, which I think was kind of supposed to, in a way, be a sort of reference to the working class. 
And their argument sort of repeatedly and constantly was that people in this category were the backbone of the country and they were really struggling and uh, Cameron and Osborne were really on their sides. Um, they have to get up early to go to work. They're worried about their standard of living. They're worried about their job security. Um, poor old Nick Clegg, if any of you know about him, um, even had his own kind of very short-lived terminology, which he called alarm clock Britain for a few months in 2011, I think. Um, but the argument here was that these people were not struggling because of crisis and austerity. They were struggling essentially because they were being kind of set upon by these sort of social parasites. Now, who or what were these parasites? And this is where it starts to get extremely dark and kind of quite nasty. So often, for example, it was people on benefits, uh, kind of you, hardworking people, are struggling because your taxes have to pay for people that don't work. Now, this argument in kind of objective terms, doesn't really stand up to any kind of scrutiny because we know that the pressures on employees' wages and conditions are nothing to do with the so-called sort of burden of the benefit system. But of course, what this argument lacked in kind of actual truthfulness, it made up, in this, it made up for in this kind of uh, weird sort of poetry that government figures started to use. So George Osborne would go on sort of radio in the morning and talk about how angry people must be to be leaving for work early in the morning and kind of looking down the street and seeing that there were some people, some of their neighbours, who still had their curtains drawn and so presumably were still in bed. Um, and, you know, these lazy people don't even have to set an alarm clock and yet you're paying for them. And kind of all of this sort of quite drawn-out rhetoric. But arguably even worse than this was the way that immigration increasingly featured in this discussion... So immigrants were increasingly presented not as kind of part of the working class, but as a drain on it, or even as a kind of uh, competitor to the so-called traditional working class, i.e. the white working class. So your wages are declining not because of what's going on in capitalism, in British capitalism, but because of immigration, and the elites uh, don't care. So this kind of quite clever merging of uh, truth and falsehood. Uh, so right-wing voices very cleverly managed to kind of weave concerns about material precariousness at work alongside all of these cultural issues. And that's very much reflected in the kind of language Theresa May was using that I just showed. And the upshot was that kind of it got, it got to the point where sort of having things like right-wing opinions about immigration was now becoming the sort of primary signifier of being part of the kind of authentic working class. Now, there were obvious ways this backfired for Cameron in particular, obviously Brexit being one which we won't go into much here unless you want to ask about it later, which, you know, I don't know. Um, but in any case, uh, this reading of political discussion sort of did have terrible consequences. Um, it sort of enabled the country's sort of dimmest private school right-wingers to present themselves as kind of class warriors, even from within the world's most elite media bubbles. And these are problems that we urgently need to, collect, to correct. And we can see that this kind of mutilated version of class politics has been very effective against the centre-left. Um, I've got a series of graphs, uh, not including Ireland, but you could certainly obviously put the, the Irish Labour Party on here very happily. Um, generally we've seen the kind of mass decline of centre-left parties because generally their response to the kind of resurgence in class language on the right has been to try and talk about things like inequality 
but in a very vague way, which has little to say really about sort of class as it applies to people's actual lives and experiences. You know, inequality can often be quite an abstract statistical terminology um, that people just feel sort of fatalistic about. You know, uh, the Gini coefficient is going up or down. Um, what does that actually mean? What, what the hell can we do about it? Not a lot, it seems. But insecurity, precariousness at work, uh, these are things that people really feel in their daily lives and think about a lot. And the right has successfully kind of married this material concern to kind of all these cultural neuroses around immigration and identity. Whereas the kind of mainstream left is full of people who have spent decades talking about how great flexibility is for workers, kind of flex security and all of that stuff. This is why they are losing. So this is why I think it's so urgent we need to rethink, rethink how we understand class and come up with new ways of analysing and talking about it. Now, as all of this has been going on, the more kind of intellectual side of the discussion of class, kind of among social theorists, academics and so on, has also been in flux. Um, some of this is not especially encouraging. So let's take, uh, for example, political science. Um, political science as an intellectual field, often is sort of more concerned with things like kind of voting trends, polling data, election results, political party strategies, than it is with people's kind of lived experiences, let's say, at work or within society. And arguably for this reason, there's a number of kind of prominent political scientists, certainly in the UK, who I think have more or less bought into entirely into the kind of right-wing class warrior argument I've just been discussing i.e. that the main kind of quote-unquote class divide is between sort of your cosmopolitan elites and the so-called traditional working class. Um, because this kind of superficial conclusion can be sort of fairly glibly supported with reference to opinion polls and the like. And it also means there's a kind of real fad for the kinds of discussions such as that advertised on the slide behind me for which tickets are uh, still available if you fancy a trip over to London. Essentially, um, I mean, we're talking here about real sort of... Uh, sort of ethno-nationalist right talking points, you know, now presented as the sort of cutting edge of intellectual debate. Um, a lot of this, I think, stems from this kind of obsession with the idea of the traditional working class versus the sort of cosmopolitan elites dichotomy as sort of the, the key lens through which to view politics. So political scientists have used these assumptions to predict things like the kind of destruction of the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn and the massive increase of Theresa May's majority in the 2017 election, um, which, of course, didn't happen. Um, this guy, who was also a participant in the, uh, the debate on the previous slide, um, promised to eat his own book live on TV if uh, Corbyn got 38% of the vote in 2017. And to be fair to him, as you can see, he actually did, did do that. Um, if I have time at the end, maybe I'll come back and talk a bit more about sort of what's going on in the sort of Labour Party at the moment, if anyone is interested and if I have time. Um, I think a lot of the more kind of liberal political scientists have largely the exact same analysis, just with the different normative spin. You know, they still buy into this idea of the sort of cultural difference between the traditional working class and the cosmopolitans, but they just sort of put the other moral spin on it. You know, so they're really appalled... Um, beyond comprehension at things like Brexit and are totally agog with people like Emmanuel Macron as this kind of liberal centrist avenger against the illiberal masses. 
Now, where it probably gets more interesting is in sociological research, which is actually more sort of focused on people's kind of lived experiences of the world around them. So we have initiatives like uh, the Great British Class Survey, which uh, was a few years back now, which, re which sought to kind of redraw the British class structure into seven groups running from the elites at the top through to kind of established middle class, new affluent workers, emergent service workers, traditional working class, and so on. Um, this is based on a whole sort of complex of indicators. So your sort of economic, social, cultural capital. So not just how much money you have in sort of purely materialist terms, but things like who your friends are, uh, what contact networks you have, uh, what kinds of cultural reference points you recognize, and so on. This enables them to kind of sort you into this kind of seven-pronged, seven-tiered structure. Notice how on the bottom here, which is the thing I put up on the screen, the most vulnerable group is something called the precariats. Now, if you follow these kind of debates, you might associate this with a guy standing, who I believe spoken here recently, who sort of really popularized that term in English language debates. Essentially, Standing argues that we can identify on a global scale a new class group called the precariat. These people are distinct from what we might call the working class, and their def defining characteristic is, as the name suggests, precariousness. So they lack security in a number of key respects, and Standing lists various ones. They lack access to secure work. Um, they lack access to opportunities to develop skills and careers. Um, to, they lack access to things like trade union representation. And they may often have poor access to welfare state safety nets and so on. Something very important for Standing's argument here, his political argument, is that because they have this distinct experience of precariousness, they're not just analytically different from the traditional working class, but they actually have different interests and a different political agenda. They're essentially too insecure to benefit much from trade unionism. And the organized labor movement, Standing is really critical of what he calls kind of laborism. Instead, what they need is an extended welfare system to mitigate precariousness. For instance, Standing's now a, a famous proponent of universal basic income. So here we're moving towards the idea that precariousness and insecurity at work is now more or less unavoidable and endemic. And the thing to do is not sort of concentrate on improving work itself, but creating new welfare institutions to mitigate the consequences of that. Now, um, rather than sort of going into depth on these debates, I want to sort of note the following sort of bigger theoretical point here, which is that in terms of everything I've been discussing, the discussion of class is basically about classification. It's about sorting people into particular groups defined in relation to various different aspects of their situation, uh, job security, contacts, their opinions and attitudes, and so on. It could be something relatively coherent, whatever you, whether you agree with it or not, something relatively well thought out, like Standing's argument. Or it could be something kind of self-serving and ridiculous, like the kind of right-wing class warrior arguments I've discussed before. But my argument is that we need essentially a kind of fundamentally different way of thinking about class as an alternative, one which is not actually primarily about categorizing people according to their individual attributes, however defined. Um, instead, we need an understanding of class based on the, the function that people fulfill within the economic structure of society. Uh, what do people need to do in order to continue to exist in capitalist societies. 
Do they rely on selling their labour power? Do they make profit from buying other people's labour power? Um, or, you know, some other function, functions such as kind of fulfilling managerial roles and so on. And most importantly, what kind of pressures and imperatives are exerted on people collectively as a result of these roles and relationships? I think we need to understand this in order to build a response to precarious work, because precarious work is not simply the preserve of the precariat. It is arguably, again, to very varying extents and in various different ways, inherent to the capitalist employment relationship. The relationship between labour and capital is the absolute engine of a capitalist society, and it generates precariousness like an engine generates heat. And so with that in mind, I wanted to highlight some kind of central Marxian concepts which I think have been lost in the way we discuss class and precariousness, but which I think tell us a lot about what is happening today. Uh, workplace control, labour market discipline, and this idea I've called alien powers. And I'll explain this shortly. Um, so these are not necessarily things that I see confined to specific groups, such as the precariat and so on. The things I argue are experienced right across capitalist societies as part of the kind of labour capital relationship, but of course in empirically very varied ways. This is why I started the evening talking about a strike involving a supposedly fairly kind of uh, elite, let's say, group of workers. So the first thing I wanted to sort of talk about was uh, workplace discipline. Um, so in developing kind of his version of the labour theory of value, Marx concludes that the source of profit, which is of course the absolute lifeblood of capital, without which capitalism cannot exist, is labour. To make profit, capital depends on being able to induce workers to produce more value than they take home in payment. Now this is the kind of thing that actually to many people seems like a statement of the obvious. But we need to think about what this actually means, what are the implications are of it. Essentially this means that the kind of economic nucleus of our societies the workplace and what goes on there is founded on a conflict of interest between those who depend on being able to sell their labour power in order to survive and those who realise profit from buying that labour power. This has many consequences, but the first thing is that there is always, in any capitalist relationship, the imperative um, for workplace discipline. Managers and capital have to continually find new ways of exerting control over labour, be this through kind of threats or bribery or whatever else. And the implications of this are all around us today. So in the Amazon warehouse, um, a Guardian investigation found that workers were required to walk up to 11 miles over a night shift and are expected to collect an order every 33 seconds. Enforcing this very demanding schedule requires no human contact at all. They have a kind of wearable device which bleeps if the pace slackens. And we'll see now that Amazon are actually patenting uh, motion-sensitive wristbands that track not just people's footsteps, where they're walking around the, the warehouse, but actually what their hands are doing during that time. Um, Cutting-edge stuff. And uh, note the way in which a kind of wearable electronic monitoring device uh, reminds us of the criminal justice system. Uh, we can also look to kind of expanding areas of employment like call centre work. I mean, anyone who has worked in a call centre will know the intensive level of control exerted on every aspect of the worker's day. The kind of constant scripting even of supposedly kind of off-the-cuff moments, 
the uh, regulation and monitoring of things like going to the toilet. You know, you have to sort of put your hands up and ask if you can go to the toilet like you're a six-year-old at school. The kind of covert surveillance as management listens in on calls and so on. But this is not just simply to say, um, you know, beware of getting a, a job in the sort of low-wage service industry. Because um, this kind of disciplinary imperative is manifested in some form of some form or another uh, in all labour capital relationships. So let's look at the environment among professional staff, also at Amazon, who evidently kind of excel in top-to-bottom workforce discipline. Um, I'll quote this from a, a New York Times report about white-collar Amazon workers. At Amazon, workers are encouraged to tear apart one another's ideas in meetings, toil long and late. Emails arrive past midnight, followed by text messages asking why they were not answered and held to standards that the company boasts are, quote-unquote, unreasonably high. The internal phone directory instructs colleagues on how to send secret feedback to one another's bosses. Employees say it is frequently used to sabotage others. The tool offers sample text, including this. I felt concerned about his inflexibility and openly complaining about minor tasks. So extremely kind of intrusive and disciplinarian forms of control have developed, including within supposedly more sheltered, high-status jobs. And this has been, in some respects, uh, kind of supercharged by technological innovation. The idea that you can work on mobile devices outside of office hours, for instance, which is sometimes presented sort of supposed to have this kind of liberatory effect. But there are numerous pieces of research showing that... um, the sort of pressures this unleashes, the need to prove that you aren't a weak link by making a show of replying to emails at two in the morning, for instance. Uh, And as context here, I'd like to point out that in many countries now, things like managerial jobs or middle management are often being shifted to more short-term contracts contingent on sort of tight performance management targets. In other words, precariousness at work is seeping throughout labour markets rather than being confined to those just at one end of it. I mean, research in the UK also shows that workers are becoming more worried about managerial comeback if they're off sick and increasingly pressured to attend work when ill. Kind of innovations like the sort of return to work interview where staff are called in uh, to their manager's office to kind of justify themselves for having time off sick and so on. Now, all of this stuff matters on a human level because human beings are not built to be subject to this kind of discipline. We have kind of our own minds and our own objectives, which these sorts of measures strip away. But the kind of analytical point I want to make is that this, that this idea of precariousness here is kind of a much more uh, diffuse and wide-ranging version um, than we're sort of accustomed to talking about, which, and, and can't really be confined to specific class groups. And I'm going to come back to this in just a minute. Um, furthermore, I mean, these, these problems are greatly compounded when people feel like wider labour market conditions are against them. So in this sense, we come to the kind of second point I wanted to make, which relates to sort of forms of class discipline which act across the wider labour market and which result in greater and distinct forms of precariousness. So there's a growing sense, a going kind of conventional wisdom, I guess, that labour markets in developed, developed economies are becoming more insecure. So various countries have seen increases in things like so-called atypical work, you know, so work that deviates from what is sometimes called the standard employment relationship, i.e. kind of regularised full-time permanent employment contracts. 
Um, we've seen a transnational trend, with some exceptions, towards weaker employment protections, more use of temporary work, part-time work, and other forms of casualised contracts. To the extent that we have to wonder whether the kind of standard employment relationship, so-called, was really any kind of standard, or if its predominance was more of a kind of post-war historical blip. Now, note that in some cases, like the United Kingdom, the rise has been more modest of these specific kinds of atypical contingent contracts. Um, now, this is probably unlikely to be that sort of capital in these countries is better regulated or that labour is stronger. Probably more likely that employment protections are already weak enough that employers don't necessarily see the need for new forms of employment contracts. Um, they can sort of fire people fairly easily or readily already. So in some respects, things like changes in contract type are not a reliable indicator or not a sort of comprehensive indicator of levels of precariousness. As evidence of this, uh, Duncan Galley and his colleagues in looking at the UK find through workforce surveys that irrespective of what's happening to people's contracts, uh, British workers feel more precarious at work. But more than being afraid of losing their jobs, they're afraid of pay reductions and they're afraid of more qualitative concerns, which are harder to quantify, like a loss of say over how they do their work, or being pushed into less interesting roles with less opportunities to gain new skills. Now, this, of course, has to be seen in the context of declining union membership and collective bargaining coverage. This has been uneven, because, of course, the uh, Western European line, the sort of dotted red line in this graph, conceals huge variation within the sort of West European category. But again, even sort of taking this into account, these kinds of figures can be misleading. So uh, Chris Howell and Lucio Baccaro, for instance, have shown how uh, collective bargaining institutions right across Europe, even where they nominally still exist and still have coverage, have become a lot weaker and a lot less assertive in terms of the results they have been getting for labour. The state, uh, Chris Howell argues, has been active in reshaping the aims and the scope and the methods of collective bargaining institutions so that they impose less of a burden on capital. Now, to understand the relationship between class and precariousness, we need to firstly sort of acknowledge the haziness and the problems of the sort of precarious terminology. So, for instance, um, along with some colleagues at Leeds, I recently co-edited... Um, a special issue of the journal Work, Employment and Society, kind of uh, leading UK sociology of work journal, on precarious work. And we received, I think, more submissions from authors than pretty much any other special issue in the history of the journal. Now, this may have been because of our sort of marvellous self-publicity and networking skills. Uh, possibly more likely, this tells us that the subject is clearly quite important and matters to a lot of people, but at the same time it tells us that it's in danger of becoming perhaps too broad and too sort of universally applicable. You can apply it more or less to anything. And we had sort of submissions from people talking about pretty much any kind of work you can imagine as examples of precariousness. But then you have the other problem as well, because while we want to prevent it becoming just too broad and universally applicable, we also can't really reduce it to questions like contract type. So you, you, we can't really say that you're precarious if you're on a temporary contract, but not precarious if you have a permanent contract and so on. So we need to sort of find a way out of that kind of analytical quandary. 
Um, and what I wanted to do was start to try and differentiate um, not different categories to sort people into, but different processes by which um, precariousness can be increased and decreased. The sort of different processes which kind of affect the form and intensity of precarity, which to some degree is inherent in all labour employment, labour capital relationships. Um, now, it will be a sort of whole kind of lecture and probably a much more kind of dry and academic lecture in tone if I was sort of trying to give a comprehensive set of what these might be. But I thought I could just go through a few, sort of a few process of what I would call uh, labour market discipline techniques, which have the consequence of creating new particular kinds of precariousness and increasing um, the, the relative levels of precariousness for people. So one, for example, is the uh, use of uh, technological mechanisms to facilitate new forms of on-demand work. So the quote behind me uh, is um, from the CEO of the platform kind of clickwork firm Crowdflower, which sort of encapsulates this idea. Uh, technological innovations such as platforms help us break up work into smaller tasks which can be sort of outsourced as much as you like and done in a kind of completely on-demand sort of way. And it creates the sense of instant disposability of the workforce, which clearly the CEO of Crowdflower really buys into. Now, there's perhaps a danger in getting too focused on something like the gig economy, which in fact is sort of relatively small proportion of workers in a relatively specific set of sectors. But I think it's worth mentioning because as the kind of hype around it increases, so does the sort of ideology which states that precariousness is simply the way of the world today. Um, conservative politicians, of course, have a kind of vested interest in making everyone think that this is the case because it does sort of lead to fatalism and acceptance of the kind of bad policies they want to introduce. Um, but I want to stress that this kind of technology creates, let's say, the sense of instant disposability, almost like the illusion of total disposability of the workforce. And actually, we're increasingly starting to see fightbacks against kind of platform firms and this kind of work, which are being documented through really kind of outstanding new resources, such as uh, Notes from Below. Um, the important thing revealed by these kinds of actions is the need to be sort of innovative and mobile while kind of adhering to traditional sort of tools of trade unionism and labour organising, you know, rather than sort of taking a big right turn to sort of focusing solely on the, the welfare system. So um, Akhil Marotta has described how the role of the uh, ID, IWGB union in the recent uh, UK Deliveroo strikes has needed to act as this kind of postal worker of the struggle, sort of travelling around, talking to people at uh, order pickup points, sharing information among couriers, talking to them about working conditions, identifying shared grievances, and in this way kind of acting to foster a kind of shared sense of solidaristic identity among what otherwise could be a very sort of mobile, disparate workforce. So we're talking here, right, really just classic basics of sort of trade union organising and mobilisation, which are starting to achieve successes. Marotta um, also stresses what's interesting, because of the demographic nature of the delivery workforce, uh, another sort of function that union organisers have taken on is helping with things like warning of the presence of kind of immigration enforcement vans and so on. 
And this leads us to the next point I wanted to make. Um, another sort of specific process of labour discipline, labour force discipline, which generates new and intensified forms of precariousness, is less technological and more bureaucratic. Things like limitations on people's access to particular citizenship rights. So one of the most important articles that made it into the, uh, the special issue I spoke about previously was one by um, a Finnish academic uh, Anna Similar, who looked at relatively skilled professional migrants working in Brussels. She shows how by the kind of increasing use of different kind of bureaucratic hurdles to citizenship, requirements to take on new jobs, avoid claiming certain benefits, work X number of hours a week and so on, these workers become more or less forced to continue working in precarious circumstances or risk losing their right to remain in the country. So in other words, threatening people's citizenship rights is a form of labour discipline. And this is why when we think about something like Brexit, migration and workers' rights, the relevant question perhaps is not so much uh, will there be more or less migration after Brexit, but what rights will those workers have? So before I talked about our strike earlier this year and the threat to non-EU colleagues' UK residency due to their participation in the action, do we have to start worrying about this in relation to EU colleagues as well? But of course, when I talk about sort of citizenship precarity, I'm not solely talking about migration. We can also see this in the kind of progress of policies such as punitive workfare policies, which of course, with which of course Ireland is extremely familiar. The sort of shift from universal welfare payments to conditional ones enforced by administrative hoops and sanctions, which is a direct attack on citizenship rights um, for a much sort of greater proportion of the non-migrant population, which renders the fear of unemployment greater and exacerbates precariousness. Now, another, the sort of third process of labour market discipline, which leads to another kind of specific form of precariousness, is the socialisation of knowledge and skills in the hands of capital and their removal from the individual worker. A real kind of classic Marxian process. You know, we think of sort of Marx's depiction of the transition from the highly skilled individual weaver, let's say, who handles all aspects of a complex manufacturing process, but who becomes a sort of, um, uh, who comes to sort of perform relatively simple, repetitive tasks as on an assembly line with the progress of industrialization and socialization. The technical know-how, the tacit knowledge of the worker is brought under the control of the capitalist and standardised and kind of further devalues the worker's bargaining power in the labour market. Now, this idea is something that often gets lost because we have a lot of buzz nowadays around certain things like this, you know, the so-called kind of creative economy, the knowledge economy, these kinds of terms. The idea that at least for certain people, uh, work is becoming more reliant on the creative skills of the worker and I think it's quite important that we start to puncture this or at least tarnish it a little bit. You know, we can see kind of examples of this Marxian process of socialisation in sort of qualitative studies, for instance, of the video games industry. So uh, Paul Thompson and his colleagues, for instance, have found that as video games companies expand, there tends to be more standardisation. So games designers, which I'm sure for many people is seen as sort of the ultimate kind of work nirvana for a lot of kind of technologically engaged young people nowadays 
uh, would go from having a kind of more rounded role in not just executing but also conceiving elements of a game or a piece of software towards a job where they were essentially given one kind of micro task such as designing the heads on imps or whatever which they had to sort of undertake in a much more repetitive way according to a defined procedure and I realized that this is not an imp it is a cacodemon but that doesn't matter at the moment this is a kind of um, precariousness um, the loss of specific skills and their replacement by generic ones and finally before sort of concluding I wanted to mention uh, the th a third sort of idea which I see as a kind of major underpinning source of increased precariousness in our societies, which is what I've sort of used this idea of alien powers, which is a phrase which I kind of try to adopt, which Marx uses quite a lot in passing in certain sections of his work and which I've tried to expand on in the book. Essentially, what I want to say here is something that initially seems like an obvious point, but which has really profound implications. Capitalist societies can only function if profit is being made. If profit is not being made, then capitalist societies do not have investment, do not have growth, and things start to fail. So in this sense, the imperative for capital to realise profit is not just something driving individual capitalists, but, some, but society itself has to evolve in such a way that it allows profit to continue being made. This principle has to guide the very evolution of societal institutions and governance. The existential need for profit on the part of the capitalist, collective capitalist class becomes an alien power acting over society as a whole. Now this in turn leads to ultimately the majority of people in capitalist societies being shut out of the instruments of government and the subordination of government to the more abstract interests of capital as a collective class. Uh, governments in capitalist societies can never be a kind of neutral regulator of the economy who reconciles and mediates between different societal interests. In the last instance, they have to do what they think is best for capital sort of best for the, let's say, the, the sort of medium-term ac continued accumulation of capital. Now, it's important to stress, however, that because we're talking about alien powers here, um, they don't, governments don't always know what this is. So something like austerity, dismantling collective bargaining institutions, uh, punitive workfare policies, and so on, um, these are things which actually have a very poor record on their own terms in terms of kind of generating labour market participation and growth. Um, so it's maybe not so much what kind of capital actually wants, in my view, as sort of governments desperately trying to kind of anticipate what it thinks capital wants and do stuff that they think would impress it, kind of like a sort of teenager trying to get a university student to go out with them. This is, this is sort of how I conceive the relationship between the capitalist class and, uh, and government at the moment. But in any case, I mean, I've already talked about how across Europe, things like collective bargaining institutions have been uh, forcibly dismantled or subverted, often by active state policies rather than just neglect. Um, despite being kind of shrouded in the sort of language of modernization and technocracy, um, this process has usually been quite chaotic and quite authoritarian. Look at cases like Greece, Spain, and of course Ireland, 
where these kinds of policies have been directly and repeatedly implemented in a manner that overrules democratic mandates of government and their institutions. So again, these policies are not stabilising policies. They are destabilising policies. They've done very little for growth in Europe and have arguably disrupted it. But what they do achieve, and this is where I sort of come back to the argument and sort of theme guiding the talk, what they do achieve is extending the relative power of capital to discipline labour. They make labour more afraid of capital, which under capitalism is a quite important end in itself. So, for instance, one of the studies I've done recently is looking at precarious work in social services, kind of welfare-to-work systems, comparing France and Slovenia. And what's really interesting is, certainly in the Slovenian case, the extent to which under kind of um, European conditionality and austerity requirements, the infrastructure for governing social services in Slovenia has completely deteriorated and become chaotic. And while this is obviously a bad thing for the actual service being provided, it also, I've, I, we've sort of found and have tried to argue in recent research, it also leads very directly to more precarious um, working conditions for the staff actually providing those services. Because you start to lose the actual government infrastructure which can provide secure work. So this degeneration of government infrastructure, degeneration of the kind of public realm which can, kind of, which can insulate people against precariousness is threatened by the kind of alien power of capital and the, the, the profit imperative. So I'm kind of coming on to my conclusions. I don't know how much longer I have to speak. Like, okay, I'll, I'll talk for maybe just a few more minutes about what all of this might actually mean. I mean, what I've been trying to get across is this. Um, when we talk about the importance of class, why it matters for current society and politics, we need to absolutely reject the understanding of class which predominates today. Instead, I've sought to lay out some kind of Marxian concepts which I believe help us to think out a more effective understanding of, of, kind of how class works in our society and how class processes can generate different forms of precariousness at work. Um, what else was I going to say? Yeah. Um, so, what does this mean in terms of actually thinking of a response to precarious work? Well, I think I mean I'm going to be quite modest in my conclusions. I don't sort of have a policy agenda here, really. I think the most important thing, from my perspective, is that this has to mean being much more aggressive and vocal in repeatedly rejecting ideological divisions which prevents people from doing things about precariousness because one thing that I've tried to show and one thing which I really believe is that no matter how precarious the worker capital depends on labour and that means that workers have power so we have to make the argument loudly and repeatedly that solidarity is important and it works and that more specifically any kind of kind of productive useful class politics has to be totally incompatible with any kind of anti-immigrant politics and any kind of anti-welfare politics. So rather than kind of questioning the value of class-oriented trade union politics, which is implied by the sort of some of the arguments surrounding the precariat, trade unions need to be at the forefront of bringing the most precarious workers, kind of migrant workers, young workers, and of course, um, in a lot of cases, people in kind of female-dominated professions. I mean, I haven't, unfortunately, really haven't mentioned gender at all because of time constraints, but 
any case. But binding these got new areas into a class movement. Precarious work is a threat to all of us, and it's something that in some form the vast majority of people will have to deal with in, you know, in some shape or form and at some point. But precarious workers themselves are a vital ally and resource. And this means a model of organised labour that organises new workers and supports those in the most insecure situations in accessing their rights. One which sees the extension of the welfare state and the decommodification of labour as a central goal. So I'm not opposed to things like basic income per se, but to my mind, they have to be sort of implemented not as an alternative to good quality work, but as a means of increasing people's bargaining power within the labour market. Um, and in terms of the way we think about society, I think, you know, if I can sort of talk from a more academic perspective, I think there, is, there are some dangers, despite the value of these kind of sociological approaches, which, you know, I don't want to sort of completely sort of slag them off, you know. Um, a lot of my best friends are uh, sociologists of class. Um, there are dangers in um, sort of focusing on developing new forms of class categorization, which each has kind of different characteristics and interests. And the danger is that this kind of obfuscates how the class processes I've identified are felt on a societal scale. Yes, their severity varies very widely. I think this goes without saying, but fighting against them and identifying the forms that precariousness takes and the processes that drive them cuts across these kinds of empirical divisions between different sort of class strata. So I'm not here to advocate a certain set of policy goals or demands. I'm more sort of here to say that I can't see the left making any further progress until they develop a better way of thinking and talking about class that actually helps us understand the kinds of problems which are universal in capitalist societies. And if I can have maybe just another sort of 30 seconds or one minute, perhaps I can bring this back a little bit to... Um, uh, OK, I'll be sort of uh, parochially and talk about the kind of situation in the UK. Um, I think this kind of analysis does help us start to understand a bit more about what's going on in UK politics and elsewhere um, at the moment. People often say, like, the, the kind of conventional wisdom now about UK politics is that younger professional people, by younger we tend to mean sort of below 40, let's say. I believe at the last election, sort of 47 was the, the age where you became um, more likely to vote for Theresa May than Jeremy Corbyn. Um, so younger people from kind of professional, educated sections of society are supporting Labour now and rejecting the Conservatives. Um, and this is because they are sort of liberal and cosmopolitan and because they're so aghast and repelled by Brexit. And it follows from this that that support is going to collapse unless Corbyn sort of pivots to a much sort of harder remain liberal position. Um, the alternative argument, which again rests on the same, um, the same analysis, but from the opposite perspective, says that Corbyn has to reconnect with the traditional working class by becoming much harsher on immigration, and there has been some pressure on him to do this. Um, so the argument then being that the kind of left in the UK and elsewhere is shifting away from class politics and towards a much more kind of liberal, uh, sort of culturalist kind of politics. Now, I mean, you know, there may be some kind of empirical truth in that to some extent, but it doesn't seem really to get the whole picture to me. Because I think that a lot of the sort of left-leaning voting behaviour among supposedly quite sort of skilled professional people under 40 
in the UK is not just because, oh, they're this sort of cosmopolitan bunch who um, are really offended by uh, the sort of parochialism of, um, of the kind of current government. I mean, they are that. That is certainly the case. But it's also the case that they themselves are increasingly being subject to the kinds of class dynamics I've described. And again, this was another reason to start with sort of talking about academia. You know, if you go to sort of university campuses in the UK and you speak to people who sort of have PhDs who are working in teaching university students, they will have a very, very, very strong personal understanding of the word precarious. And they will see very clearly a class division between them and their management. And this is by no means unique just to kind of academic work. And I think this is probably what's driving a lot of the support, the kind of leftwards opinion in the UK at the moment. So there's potentially a very strong coalition there which is against the commodification of labour and against the deterioration of government and social institutions, but that needs to actually be, be manufactured and fought for. And that means rejecting the kind of sort of misleading sort of versions of class politics which, um, which predominate today. And so in that sense, I'll just finish, um, since this is kind of trendy on Twitter at the moment, I'll finish on uh, Rosa Luxemburg's famous statement that ultimately capitalism presents people with a choice between socialism and barbarism. Now, I think we should notice that pretty much everyone we might see as heralding the barbarism side of this equation, so Donald Trump, Marine Le Pen, Nigel Farage, and so on, um, this guy, uh, Casey, right? I've been watching my late-night talk shows here. These people make a lot of capital out of the kinds of sort of bad versions, the culturalist versions of class politics that I've been discussing. The kind of culturalist understanding of class is basically the bread and butter of these people. And so if we want to move to the other side of that equation, uh, the first thing to do is actually sort of theorise and articulate a different way of understanding class. And so I'll finish there. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the SIP2 College podcast. We have loads of interesting courses taking place. So if you want to take part in one of the courses and you're a member of SIP2, talk to your trade union organiser. We will welcome you with open arms because we really, really want as many people as possible taking part in trade union education. It's a great opportunity. It's uh, an interesting thing to do. And hopefully it's enjoyable too. So contact us if you want. You can... uh, look up sip 2 college at sip2college.ie and you'll get a list of all the courses that we do so thanks a million for listening and again happy new year